We're turning in God's Word this morning to Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah 57. We'll read the entire chapter, Isaiah chapter 57. Let's hear the Lord's word. The righteous perisheth, and no man layeth it to heart. And merciful men are taken away, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. But draw near hither, ye sons of the sorceress, the seed of the adulterer and the whore. Against whom do ye sport yourselves? Against whom make ye a wide mouth and draw out the tongue? Are ye not children of transgression, a seed of falsehood, inflaming yourselves with idols under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys under the cliffs of the rocks? Among the smooth stones of the stream is thy portion. They, they are thy lot. Even to them hast thou poured a drink offering. Thou hast offered a meat offering. Should I receive comfort in these? Upon a lofty and high mountain hast thou set thy bed. Even thither wentest thou up to the offer sacrifice. Behind the doors also and the posts hast thou set up thy remembrance. For thou hast discovered thyself to another than me, and art gone up. Thou hast enlarged thy bed, and made thee a covenant with them. Thou lovest their bed where thou sawest it. And thou wentest to the king with ointment, and didst increase thy perfumes, and didst send thy messengers far off, and didst debase thyself even unto hell. Thou art wearied in the greatness of thy way. Yet saidst thou not, there is no hope. Thou hast found the life of thine hand, therefore thou wast not grieved. And of whom hast thou been afraid or feared that thou hast lied and hast not remembered me, nor laid it to thy heart? Have not I held my peace even of old, and thou fearest me not? I will declare thy righteousness and thy works, for they shall not profit thee. When thou criest, let thy companies deliver thee, but the wind shall carry them all away. Vanity shall take them, but he that putteth his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain and shall say, cast ye up, cast ye up, prepare the way. Take up the stumbling block out of the way of my people. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. For I will not contend forever, neither will I be always wroth, for the spirit should fail before me and the souls which I have made. 
For the iniquity of his covetousness was I wroth and smote him. I hid me and was wroth, and he went on frowardly in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will lead him also and restore comforts unto him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him that is far off and to him that is near, saith the Lord. And I will heal him. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. And the Lord will add his blessing to that reading for his name's sake. Bow your head with me for a moment, please. Let's all ask the Lord for a word in season. Let's all pray. Gracious God, we turn to the Holy Word, acknowledging that we need the Spirit's enabling to preach and to hear. Grant the fullness of that Spirit to thy people. Bear thy servant along in this message. May there be a a meeting of our hearts over the Word and that will shine very brightly upon the path that we need to walk. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. My text is found in the last half of verse 14, where God, through Isaiah, speaking to the people who would be in captivity in Babylon, says this, Take up the stumbling block out of the way of my people. As I'm sure most of you know, one of the promises that the Lord gave to his people in captivity was that they would one day return to their homeland. At the end of verse 13, the Lord says, He that putteth his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain, a reference to the city of Jerusalem. That was the promise that they were one day going to return to that holy city and enjoy the blessings of living in Zion once again. And to assure them that they will indeed return, God declares that he himself is going to give the order that the road back to Jerusalem be prepared and every obstacle, every stumbling block would be removed. Now, that stumbling block, that is not referring to a literal clearing of the roads that would lead them back to Jerusalem, but to the fact that the Lord was going to deal with anything, everything, anyone that would prevent his people from returning to their homeland, back to the Holy Land, to Zion. And God did that very thing when he moved in the heart of that Persian king Cyrus to issue a decree to allow the Jews to return. What a day of rejoicing that must have been when that gathering set foot again in the city of Zion. Now, what does all of that have to do with you and me in 2021? You see, there's a bigger point in my text 
obviously this was not simply written to give a bit of history about the Jews of so long ago. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So there's something here, obviously. There's some doctrine, there's some reproof, there's some correction, there's some instruction in righteousness for us now from what took place so long ago. The Lord's people are on a journey to their homeland. I didn't hear the news till just now that Dr. Panosian went home. The journey is done. What a day of rejoicing that was for him when he set foot in Emmanuel's land and saw his Savior. We're all on that journey, Christians, to a heavenly Zion. God has delivered us from sin's captivity, and we're going to what John refers to twice in Revelation as the new Jerusalem to heaven, and what a day of rejoicing that will be. I'm looking forward to it. But there are stumbling blocks that stand in the way. There are things that hinder the spiritual progress of God's people as they make their journey through this world to glory. And if the believer is not made aware of them, he will more than likely stumble and fall and bring needless trouble, needless fear, needless sadness into his own life while impeding his journey to heaven. There are many stumbling blocks that we could consider. It would make a series in itself, but there's one I want us to consider this morning, and that is the stumbling block of the mysterious ways of God's providence. The mysterious ways of God's providence. Allow me to point out that, strictly speaking, it's not, it's not the providence of God that becomes the sticking point for the believer. The child of God is quite happy to know and to declare that God is the king of kings, that he does as he wills in heaven and in earth, and that part of God's special care for his people as he governs all his creatures and governs all their actions is that when that's believed with all of the heart that enables that child of God to overcome the fear, the anxiety that naturally arise when, as we're seeing today, when the heathen rage and when the kings of the earth gather themselves together against God's anointed. That's what's happening. And a worldwide scale... But the child of God knows that there's one king and he's ruling over all and he mocks them. He laughs at them. You know, it's not a funny thing when you read God laughing in Scripture. It's a solemn thing. He's mocking them. And the Lord's people love to think upon the truth that their God reigns supreme. But what does become the sticking point for the believer is when the ways of divine providence are mysterious. It's when we don't understand the why. 
in God's providence, but we are in danger of stumbling. To borrow the words of William Cowper, or if you prefer, Cooper, we, we attempt to interpret the works of God's providence with blind unbelief. And as he said, we're sure to err when we do that. And we're going to scan his works in vain. Because God is his own interpreter of everything that he does. And that's especially the case when God's mysterious providences are painful. It's not that you just don't know why. It's that it hurts deeply. Kappel referred to it as a frowning providence. The affliction that came upon Job, for example, without a doubt, was mysterious. When God took away ten of his children in one fell swoop. And racked his body with boils and sores that made it painful just to sit down. Sleep was useless. And it's also the story that's true of Joseph and Jeremiah and Daniel and Paul, and the list is endless. Mysterious ways of God's providence. It's when those ways bring trouble and sadness and pain into our lives, when his mysterious ways upend our world. And God doesn't even give us a hint as to what he's doing. Or why he's doing it. That we're in danger of stumbling. We are in danger of entertaining thoughts and taking actions that will only increase our darkness. But will also end up dishonoring the Lord. We'll begin to act more like unbelievers than believers. And so the Lord tells his servants to take up the stumbling block out of the way of my people. For this reason, I want to speak for a little bit this morning on dealing scripturally with God's painful providences. Dealing scripturally with God's painful providences. What does the word of God teach us about how you and I are to deal with these mysterious providences that bring such deep pain into our lives. Sometimes pain so deep that it seems it can't be measured. First, remember and believe that we cannot, we cannot live without God's painful providences. They're necessary. We need them, brothers and sisters. As much as we don't like them, as much as we don't want them, we need these painful providences. It's easy to forget that truth. No one puts it better, I think, than David in Psalm 110, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept thy word. That word astray means to wander off, to err. To sin. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. 
I wandered off from thy commandments. I wandered off from thy way. I went my own way, did my own thing. David's not saying that he willfully and, and wickedly and wantonly disobeyed the Lord, but that through the weakness of his own flesh and the strength of the temptation that came at him, he went astray from the Lord. He deviated from the narrow path. David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the man after God's own heart. And you've done the same thing yourself. No? No? Solomon, Proverbs 19, verse 27. He said to his son, Cease, my son, to hear the instruction that causeth to err the same word from the words of knowledge. And who better than Solomon could really write about erring from the words of knowledge? He certainly went out of bounds as he lusted after many women. David went off the rails. Why? He says it. I was living without affliction. It's when the affliction came that I was straightened out. It's when trouble and pain and grief came into my life that I was put back on the rails again and began to follow the Lord. I have to pause for a moment because the thought crosses my mind that you might be thinking, well, are you saying that because affliction and pain comes into my life, it means automatically that I'm off the rails? No, I'm not saying that. There's all kinds of reasons that God sends in the rod and discipline into our lives, not always because there's, well, you and I all know there's always sin to be dealt with, right? There's not a day that we don't live without it. There's always something that needs to be dealt with, but I'm referring now when there's been an erring off the road of righteousness, when the sheep have wandered away and they need to be restored, it's so often the way of God to bring in a painful affliction, a painful providence, and it seems mysterious to us. Well, this is not just something that David needed it's something that we need because of this proneness we have to wonder. Oh, we can go out to church on a Lord's Day morning or evening and be on high ground. But then it seems like it takes next to nothing to draw us away. We're prone to leave the God we love. We're all plagued with this sinful flesh. And we all know what it's like to yield to the temptations of Satan. The anger rises. You blow up. You speak harsh words. You regret them, but they still flatter your mouth. Lustful thoughts. Allurements, unbelief, prayerlessness, ignoring the scriptures. Every believer has been careless about his spiritual life 
neglecting God and the needs of his own soul. And those wanderings become increasingly more common when our lives are relatively free of trouble and afflictions and painful providences. Bunyan describes this in Pilgrim's Progress, that that patch of ground where it was just smooth walking, that's where it's dangerous. The Lord warned Israel about that very thing long, long before they ever reached the land of Canaan. The danger was that they, when they waxed fat, when they began to enjoy the good and plenty of the land of Canaan, they would forget the Lord and go astray. And that's exactly what they did. One old divine said this, what is it that a little ease works in us? Why is it that a little ease works in us so much disease? Can we never rest without rusting? Never be filled without waxing fat? Never rise as to one world without going down as to another? So if we're going to deal scripturally, And wisely with our painful providences that we must remember and believe with all of our hearts that we cannot live without them. You need them. I need them. All of our graces decline without them. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Secondly, remember, please, and believe that it's absolutely useless to fret over God's painful providences. It's absolutely useless to fret over the painful providences. The Lord Jesus addresses this in Matthew 6 when he speaks to his people when they are very, they're very troubled regarding the fundamental necessities of life. Which of you, by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature. The word taking thought means being anxious, worrying, fretting. Which of you by fretting can add one cubit to his stature? That has nothing to do with getting taller, folks. It's not what that's about. It's about trying to increase the length of your life. That's what that's about. Which of you, by worrying about it, is going to increase the length of your life? Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed unto man once to die. The word appointed means reserved. The date of your death and mine has been reserved by God. And we're not going to change it. We all know that up here, but boy, do we forget it. We're not going to die until our reserve time comes up. We are invincible. We can't die before then. It's a good thing to know. No need to worry about dying, really, if you're saved. The day's fixed. 
How are you going to die? Where are you going to die? When are you going to die? It's all been settled. Job 14.5, his days are, man's days are determined. It means just decided. Therefore, Christ says, it's absolutely useless to fret about what can I do to increase my lifespan. And just so, it's absolutely useless to worry about the outcome of the Lord's painful providences. That's dealing with the matter spiritually and scripturally. We can fret over the afflictions that the Lord has planned for our lives until we lose all peace of mind. We become absolutely miserable just fretting about them. But we are not going to alter one degree what God has determined before to be done. You are not going to alter God's decree. He has foreordained whatever comes to pass. And you and I are not going to change it. One iota. Job saw that truth so clearly as he pondered his state and his painful providence. He said this. He, that is God, is in one mind, and who can turn him? And what his soul desireth, even that he doeth. It's especially the case when it comes to those painful afflictions that affect our future. That's the specific context of Matthew chapter 6. The Lord's addressing the anxiety of his people, what they feel when they're afraid that their temporal needs aren't going to be met. What they're going to eat, clothes they're going to wear, where they're going to live. What does he say? Take no thought, no anxious thought for the morrow, for the morrow will take thought of itself. Sufficient for the day is the evil thereof. That's a commandment from Jesus Christ, our master. It's not an option for us. You can't cherry-pick the commandments of God. Don't worry about tomorrow. You've got enough to deal with on your plate right now for the day. The fact of the matter is that when we fret and worry and we struggle against God for putting us into such a position where we don't know where our next meal is going to come from. We don't know where the money is going to come from to pay the mortgage or the rent or the bill or whatever it might be. We're only going to increase our pain and our trouble and we're not in any way going to lighten it, diminish it. One Puritan raised a very good rhetorical question, I thought, when he said, How often do we afflict and torment ourselves by our own restless thoughts when there is no real cause or ground for doing so? We afflict ourselves. It's pointless. It's useless. There's no ground to think that's going to happen, the bad thing you're expecting to happen. But you know right well, you know right well that worry that comes in, that anxiety 
and the pain and the grief that come along. Why is it when there is this troubling and very painful providence when we're caused to look into the future, why is it that the tendency is to expect the worst possible outcome? Why? Now, let's be honest. That's so often the case. We're expecting the worst possible outcome. The Lord says, don't worry about the future. You have no idea what the future is going to bring. And to insist that it will only bring something bad into your life is denying the word of God, which promises he's making all things, even the bad things, work together for your good. It's denying Scripture itself when you expect the worst to happen. Doesn't the Word of God say, expect the best to come out of this? Oh, it's easy to sit there and say, yep, I believe that when you're not in the middle of a painful providence. But you let God land you smack into one. And you will struggle with this, I promise you. The Lord speaks of this very thing happening among the captives in Babylon. Isaiah 51, verse 13, he says, You have feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor, as if he were ready to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? You've been fretting and worrying every day. They're going to kill us. They're going to kill us. Where where is the fury you've been worrying about? You're not dead. It's been needless. We do stupid things, foolish things, hurtful things, God dishonoring things. When we don't take the scriptural path to deal with painful providences, Before the Lord asked that question about the fury of the oppressor, he said this, I, even I, am he that comforteth you. Who art thou that thou shouldst be afraid of a man that shall die, and of the son of man which shall be made as grass? And forgettest the Lord thy maker that hath stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. Do you see how that puts everything into perspective? I am the Lord. All these enemies of my people, they're going to die and withers grass. I mock them. Let the politicians, let the princes of the earth do what they may. They're grass. They're just men. You don't need to fret and worry, folks, about the outcome. (laughs) We know how this ends. Oh, yes, there's going to be many more painful providences that we're going to have to suffer. There will be tribulation. There will be persecution. 
It will be hard. But you and I can face whatever they are knowing this. We know how this is going to end. That's the truth. Unshakable. Unchangeable. Undeniable. You, you, you look anywhere else. You're wasting your time. You look to anyone else. You're wasting your time. There will be no relief from the painful emotions that you feel when God's dealing with you in mysterious ways and you don't know what he's doing or why he's doing it. You know, we're in the hands of our Heavenly Father. I, you, just get this for a moment. We are like little children. I am just a child. You are just a child. But as children, God holds us as our Father in His hands. What have I to dread? What have I to fear in such a place as that? Whatever tomorrow brings, nothing's going to take me from that place of security, that place of love, that place of attention that he has upon me and upon you. Why are you worrying, child of God? Just because you don't understand what he's doing. And because what he is doing hurts deeply. He's your father. He only does what's right. And good for you. Always. Always. At the expense of sounding trite. I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. Or to refer to David at the end of Psalm 23, surely, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, guaranteed by Almighty God. You know, the wonderful thing is, even when you don't feel it, it doesn't change the truth any. When you're full of doubts and fears, it doesn't change the truth any. That's our God. You see, our problem, folks, has been we focus upon the situation, we put our eyes upon the problem and the trouble, and we forget all about, the Lord says, look unto me. Third, third thing you must remember and believe to deal with these painful providences. God's painful providences are always sent to strengthen our graces. Always, always, always sent to strengthen our graces. Not to harm us, but to help us. 
I know you know this, but just bear with me while I tell you what you already know. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh, that's the key word, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. But what, what do these painful provinces work? Let me suggest several things quickly. They are sent in order to wean us from the world. We, we learn more and more that our happiness, our rest is not in this world. We have to be weaned from it. We find it's empty, and the longer we go on with God, the more we, well, let's get me to heaven. I, I want to go home. There's nothing in this world for me. It's lost its attraction. It's vain. It's empty. As, as much as the devil wants to paint it as something beautiful and to be longed for, painful providences teach me that the world is empty. Its lusts are empty. It can't satisfy the needs of the soul. And we need to learn that. It's a good thing. It's a good thing to have painful afflictions. If they break us from the world, is it not? Painful providences are sent to compel us to look to the Lord for strength and grace and comfort. It will drive you to your knees. They will drive you to the word. And you'll say to God, is there not a word for me? Lord, you see me in the pain and the grief. Is there not a word? Is there not a word for me? Ah, but you weren't doing that before the affliction came. Were you? You weren't crying to God from the depths of your soul before the trouble came, were you? No, it put an edge. You had to put an edge on your prayer life that nothing else could. It gave you a hunger for the word of God that nothing else would. That's a mark of a child of God. Painful providences are sent to stir us to think more about the glories of heaven than our grief on earth. Grief can swallow you up. It can leave you in a state where you don't want to see anyone. You don't want to talk to anyone. You're not even interested in texting anyone. You want to sit all alone in your grief. The affliction has this wonderful way. Right. There's no answer here in my ocean of grief. I must look on to the glories of heaven. To lose a spouse, there's nothing like it. 
But one day, glory will be shared. And what a day that will be. It turns the heart heavenward. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous, the word means painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them that are exercised thereby. They're always sent, these painful providences, to strengthen our graces and increase in holy living into them that are exercised thereby. That's the point of the rod, isn't it, on the child's backside? Yeah, I still believe in that. But there are children you can, it's like you, you can spank them and spank them. It doesn't, it doesn't even phase them. They're not exercised thereby. Ah, but the child of God, he is phased by it. And it produces righteousness in his life. It's a good thing, I say, to have these painful providences. As much as we don't like them, as much as the pain that it causes, it's a good thing to have them. I mean, if you're really honest about wanting to be like Christ, right? If you're really serious about wanting to be holy, okay, all right, you're serious, I'm going to send along. I'm going to, I'm going to, I, God says, I'm going to do something. It's going to be so painful, and I'm not going to tell you why I'm doing it. But you can know this. It will bring about righteousness in your life. Because you've prayed, make me like Christ. Make me holy. We want, we want to be mature Christians. We don't remain spiritual babes in infancy. We want to grow. We all sing sincerely. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day. By his love and power controlling all I do and say. We want to be more useful than we are. We want to live for Christ. We want to some degree at least to say with Paul... For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We mean it when we sing, Oh, for a faith that will endure, though pressed by many a foe, a faith that always stands secure through every earthly woe. We want to be mighty in prayer. We want to have a strong stand and witness for Jesus Christ. Whether it's at home in the family, whether it's at work, we want to be a bright witness. How do we think that's going to happen? A magic wand is waved, abracadabra. One of a favorite poems written by John Newton I asked the Lord that I might grow in love and faith and every grace. 
might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. I'd hope that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. That's what God does. Makes us feel the hidden evils. Nud went on to say, He crossed the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds, and laid me low. Why is this, I trembling cried? Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest seek thy all in me. That's how it happens. Painful providences. Finally, God's painful providences are sent to bring us to experience the highest expression of Christ-likeness. I refer now to Christ's subjection of his will to the will of his Father. Hebrews 10, verse 7, it's a prophetic reference to Christ. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. And Christ summarizes entire mission in coming to this world with these words, to do thy will, O God. Here's what Christ said at this very point, John 4, 34. Jesus saith unto them, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Chapter 5 of the same gospel, verse 30. I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. John 6, 38. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Over and over again, Christ makes it very clear. I, have, I am here to do the will of my Father. Not my will, but God's will. You know exactly what he said in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, if it's possible, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but thine be done. You talk about a painful providence. No one like Jesus Christ has ever gone face to face with such a painful providence as being forsaken by his God, being alone on the cross, alone on the cross. Not my will, but thine be done. You know the the greatest expression of Christ likeness? Submitting to the Father's will. God, little by little, He brings these painful providences into our lives to teach us what it is to be like Christ in His humility. In bowing humbly to the will of God and placing our will on that cross. It's not my will, it's thine. 
That's what Paul was saying in Philippians 3, that he might know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. See, that's, that, that, that's, that's, that's what is really at the heart of this whole thing of how we deal with the painful providences that God sends into our lives. Do we bow to them? Do we submit, Lord, this is not what I want. It's not what I would choose. But it's what you want. And therefore, it's what I want. That's Christ-likeness. How do you do that? How do you get there? How do you honestly get there? I'll be the first in line to tell you that a Christian, any Christian, whoever it is, cannot resign and subject his will to God's will whenever he wants. It's his responsibility to do that, but he doesn't have the power to do that. John Flavel, an old Puritan, said, Till God say to the heart, be still, and to the will, give up, nothing can be done. Nothing. How unwilling we are to give up that which God has simply loaned us. Did you, did, you get, did you get that? It's on loan. The person, the spouse, the child, the mother, the father, the friend, the home, the car, the wealth, it's on loan. The health, How unwilling we are to give up that which is on loan until we are made willing. And that's why God brings the painful providences. Just think about it like this. This is God coming to me and saying, this is my will. I want you to submit. I want you to say what my son said. Not my will, but thine be done. This resignation is difficult. How do you do it? I only know of one way. I must look off unto Jesus. I must look off unto the Son of God on the cross. And as I look off unto him on the cross, submitting his will to his Father's will, then I become like him. Because you become what you behold. You become what you study. 
You become what you gaze upon, what you fill your mind and your heart with. That's how we deal scripturally with painful providences. God stamped that word on our hearts for his namesake. We bow our heads in prayer. Let's all pray. Father, in the stillness of this hour, we plead thine own promise that thy word will not return unto thee void, but it will accomplish the ends whereunto thou hast sent it. Thou alone dost know the purposes that needed to be accomplished through preaching this word this Sabbath morning. Thou knowest thy people right where they are. And, O God, we pray that when the voice of thy servant is silent, the Spirit of God will continue to preach the truth. We pray against the fowls of the air that would come and snatch away the word before it takes root. Grant our God that through the planting and the sowing of the seed today, there will be much fruit born in all of our lives. In Christ's name and for his glory we pray. Amen.